I'll read from Acts 17, uh, verse 16 to 33. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned at the, in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, Why does this, uh, What does this blabber wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And he took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, uh, saying, May we know what this, what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you br bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul addressed the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the middle of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects that you, uh, of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since, since he himself gives to, all, man, uh, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on, on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image is formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which we will, we will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of, all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. What I, what I want to try and um, do some teaching on today is about how we as a church and how you as believers engage with, uh, with a non-Christian culture. And uh, so I, if anything, the majority of this message, I'm going to be speaking to you, assuming you are a believer in Jesus and, uh, and you are with us here at Foundation Church on, on mission, part of a community uh, on mission. And so we're going to be thinking about engaging uh, non-Christian culture. What is a culture? Uh, just so we're clear, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a load of definitions about what culture actually is. But for the purposes of this morning's message, let's just say that culture is the sum total of a people's beliefs and values and practices that characterize a, an entire group of people and has passed through generations. All right. So if you take all the beliefs, all the values, all the things we do say of a, of a big group of people, and um, that, that's pretty much what our, our culture is. 
do we live in a culture here in Northern Ireland? Do, do, do we live in a culture here in, in uh, you know, Western Europe? Of course we do. Uh, we live in a, what we can describe as a distinctly Western culture. Uh, our culture is the product of several thousand years of thought and development and practice. Um, but yet we, we live in it. And, and if you're from this part of the world and you're not uh, an immigrant from a non-Western place, uh, you kind of, you kind of uh, uh, just assume this is normal life. And indeed it is for you. Um, but rather like going to a fish who's living in water, uh, sometimes you need to come out of your culture to realize that, uh, you know, how important it is and how, how much uh, you have been characterized by your culture. So if you, if you uh, know of non-Western people that you work with, um, they will be able to see things in your culture and our culture that, that we are often blind to because we're, we're just familiar, we're used to this. Uh, but when someone comes from outside, they'll, they'll be able to see it. Likewise, if you leave uh, Western uh, culture or civilization and you go and live in another part of the world uh, for any length of time, you will start to see uh, very, very different ways of thinking and believing and acting that we commonly do here. Um, so we live in this Western culture. Um, we'll think about that more as we go along. Of course, there is variation within that. Okay, so I'm talking about peoples of, of Europe, of North America, of Canada, you know, the sort of the, the old colonies, if you like, uh, the sort of Western values. Um, but of course, there are local variations as well. There's a variation here in Northern Ireland. There's a sort of specific Northern Irish culture, which is part of the wider Western culture, we could say. All right. So yes, we do live in a culture and we can describe it as a modern Western technological culture. Is it a Christian culture? Do we live in a Christian country? Um, I'll, I'll not answer that question, mainly because people give it different answers. Um, we certainly live in a culture that has been influenced very, very heavily by Christianity and Christian values over many centuries. Uh, are we still classically a Christian country? I would argue probably not. We're wandering more and more away from our sort of Christian roots um, that underpin our, our value systems, our legal system and all that stuff. But anyway, um, that's for you to figure out. But my question, and the thing I want to try and really get to this morning, is this. Seeing as we live, we all live in a culture together, a modern Western technological culture, as a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission, how do we best approach those around us when it comes to being on mission? How do we have a, what, what one writer describes as a missionary encounter with those outside the church who live out there in our own culture? because they're not the church, they're not Christians, and they have their own unique set of values and behaviors and practices which are different, distinct from those within the church. It's not a Christian culture. So uh, we're gonna learn, um, hopefully with Paul here in this text, there are three things I wanna, wanna point out. First of all, uh, when it comes to culture, number one, we have to take time or invest time to learn it. Don't just assume because you live here and you're brought up here that you know what culture is. Uh, so we have to invest time to learn it. Secondly, we have to seize every opportunity to engage it. Thirdly and finally, we have to present Christ compellingly to it. All right. So when it comes to culture, invest time to learn it. Uh, what was the second one? Seize every opportunity to engage it. Well done, Karen. Uh, and number three, present Christ compellingly to it. If 
none of that has made any sense to you so far, hang on tight because I think that Paul uh, teaches us so many things here through this scripture. This is, uh, I was saying to Marion earlier this week when I was preparing this message, this is one of those messages um, that just feels like there should be 10 messages in one. There's like a whole sermon series in, in one text here. There's just so much. So um, if anything, I just want to get the ball rolling today. I want to get these ideas starting to float and permeate, especially if this is the first time you've had to consider it. And I'm going to recommend some resources as we go through to, to carry on that conversation uh, and, and that debate in your mind. Okay, so number one, let's take time to invest, sorry, invest time to learn the culture. Uh, where, where do we get, where, where, what's the background here in this, in this text that Paul just read to us? Uh, Paul, uh, the apostle, that is, St. Paul, uh, not that Paul, St. Paul um, has been doing ministry in Macedonia. Remember uh, uh, a week or so ago, he, last week when we looked at him, he was in Philippi. And um, he saw these amazing conversions and, and planted a church in Philippi. Uh, then he moved on uh, to another city in Macedonia called Thessalonica. And then another city after that called Berea. And each of these cities, there were riots that followed him around. There were bad people who didn't want him and his pals to be preaching the gospel. And so in the midst of this row and this riot, um, Paul was dispatched to Athens. He was sent away for his own safety to Athens and he was to await backup. His pals uh, Silas and Timothy and others in the team were going to come later. Um, so Paul was sent away. And so here we find Paul on his own walking around the ancient city of Athens. And maybe Athens is a place you've been on holiday. It's a fairly popular tourist destination if you happen to be in Greece. And many of the things that Paul was looking at um, in, in that, those days, you can still go and see. Not quite uh, as nice as they would have been in Paul's day, but you can still go and see some of the things that he would have uh, witnessed. So verse 16 of our text says that Paul, while he was waiting in Athens, what was he doing? He was wandering around the city. He was walking around, getting to grips with the city. No doubt someone like Paul plotting his next move. He was no doubt going around, praying uh, to God, praying in his spirit, asking, Lord, what shall I do? What's my next step? Where shall I go? What shall I say? Give me opportunities to preach your gospel. And so he was walking around the city with, with open eyes, uh, with a receptive spirit, uh, listening, uh, with an inquisitive mind. He wanted to learn all he could about the city so that he could best preach the gospel to them. And so what happens? It says there in verse 16 that he saw the city was full of idols. Full of idols. Um, the Greek word there for full of idols is cat idolos. It's the only place in the whole Bible where that word is used. And it means that the place was rife with idols. It was almost sunken with idols. The place was swimming in idols. He walked around and the, the, there's just something heavy, something in the atmosphere that, that was thick with paganism, the pagan religion of Athens. It was in the air that you breathe. One ancient Roman satirist uh, wrote, a writer, he wrote, uh, many, many years ago, that it's easier in Athens to find a god than to find a man. Just renowned for being saturated with these idols. And Paul, walking around the city, observed all this. And he was, he was stunned with the level of idolatry and, and paganism in that city. Of course, he knew the history of Athens. Everybody knew the history of Athens. Athens um, was the foremost city in all the known world of the, the center of excellence, intellectual excellence, 
Athens had a, a glorious history of producing some of the, the greatest thinkers the world has ever seen. And in fact, even today, here uh, in, in our Western society, we are being influenced now by the work of, of great thinkers such as Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, these great Greek uh, philosophers and thinkers. And so Paul would have been familiar with the, the current intellectual trends in Athens. He would have known about that, the ideas doing the rounds. True, Athens was no longer the, 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 the center of political power. That had since shifted to Rome. But Athens retained this reputation of being the place where thinking people live and move and exchange their ideas. You can see down in verse 21, the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time doing nothing else except telling and hearing something new. It's just what they did, this exchange of ideas, this debate, this philosophy. And so all of our modern science, our astronomy, our mathematics, and of course our philosophy finds its roots in ancient Athens, this place where Paul is just now in our text. So Paul knew the culture that he was in. He was inquisitive, he, he drunk it all in, he saw, he observed. And this is, by the way, is all very important, okay? It's very important for Paul, if he was going to bring the gospel to the people of Athens, he had to understand how they thought, how they behaved, what they believed, in order for him to speak the gospel clearly to them. It, it, it was not a case of one size fits all when it comes to evangelism and going out on mission for Jesus. He had to present the gospel to a certain people and he had to understand their underlying values and their underlying beliefs. He had to understand their language, uh, you know, understand their art and what they were saying through their art. He had to understand their philosophy. He had to understand their practices as a society. All of these things are summed up under their culture. He had to understand their culture. So what's his reaction to this awareness and drinking it all in and learning everything he could? Verse 16 again tells us his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the idols in that city. Provoked, deeply troubled. We might say in today's language, his heart was broken for what he saw. He was just deeply grieved. Every culture has its idols, including our own culture right out there, our Western modern culture. Uh, by the way, folks, we mustn't think that because when you go into Belfast and you go shopping or do whatever work in Belfast, that because we don't have uh, idols of wood or stone or metal or gold on every street corner, um, that we don't have our own unique set of idols in our own city. In fact, if we had those idols on every street corner, they'd be nicked, wouldn't they, um, in Belfast or burnt probably in July. But just because we don't have these little figures and structures lying around the place doesn't mean to say we don't have our own unique set of idols. What is an idol? For those of you who are not familiar with the term, an idol uh, is something, uh, physical or not, something that assumes ultimate importance in your life, in our city, or in our society. There's something that assumes ultimate importance. That is an idol. Something that basically takes the place of God in your life. Something that controls you, something that you serve, something that you're willing to sacrifice to, you're willing to give your resources in order to attain that thing. Idols, whatever they are, whatever shape or form they may take, are powerful. They make promises, promises to you and to your people that if you follow them and you give yourselves to them, you will get the life you want and you'll be fulfilled if you give your life, you lay your life down for 
this thing or this, this person or this situation, this idol. But unfortunately, as with all idolatry, it lacks the ability to actually come up with what it promises. It lacks the ability to fully satisfy you. Let's, 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 let's make this a bit more specific, get some examples. Uh, it's often said, it's often written that the three big idols of our modern Western culture are sex, money, and power. They drive us, these three things drive us incredibly as a nation and as a society. Rather than using these three things in service to God and the extension of his kingdom and the building up of his church, these three things become ends in themselves. They become ultimates. They were never intended as such. They become powerful and controlling, but they never satisfy us. They never give us what we think we will get when we attain sex or money or power. Oftentimes people use sex and money to gain power or they use power and money to gain sex or any combination of these things here. For example, the idol of sex, intimacy, relationship. If that is an idol for us and all of our identity and all of our well-being comes in receiving and getting and gaining that idol and giving ourselves to it, we say to ourselves, if I had this relationship or that relationship or this experience or that experience, if I was with him or with her, all will be fine in my life, all will be happy, I will be totally fulfilled, everything will go well for me. But if for whatever reason you don't get that or that relationship ends or that experience is not what you hoped it would be, you'll become devastated. You'll become crushed to the ground ultimately because it didn't fulfill what you hoped it would fulfill. That's the kind of thing that idols will do to you. And of course, that equally applies to money and power in a million different ways. We often don't see these things because they are so close to the front of our eyes. We're saturated in this stuff. That's Western culture in general, of course. In Northern Ireland, as I was mentioning, we have our own particular unique set of idols. In Belfast, uh, the idol of nation, the idol of cultural identity. The troubles alone, of course, show us that people are willing to take up arms. They are willing to lay down their lives. They're willing to spill blood over a particular vision or an understanding of their nationality and their heritage. It becomes the most important thing to them more than anything else in the world. And the Bible refers to that as an idol. It's one thing investing time in understanding our culture. It's one thing identifying the idols of our culture and learning. But when you see the effects of these idols in our culture, in our society, does it provoke your spirit the way it did for Paul? Are you grieved? I just fl flashed on a TV show the other day. It was just one of these sort of fly-on-the-wall uh, TV shows where they follow an ambulance crew around uh, in Manchester. And there was one uh, story on, on one particular night. This young man in his 20s phoned an ambulance. He worked for McDonald's in some place in Manchester. 3 a.m. in the morning, he's one of the staff, and he had a, a panic attack. He thought he was having a heart attack, of course. So he phoned the ambulance. <clears throat> Turns out the story in the back of the ambulance sort of uh, was captured on camera and this young man um, is gay. And he re recently broke up with his, his partner a week or so ago. And his whole life just went to pieces. This young guy, 20, couldn't cope, just couldn't live. And so he took a whole bunch of recreational drugs at lunchtime 
not for a high or anything in particular, but just to feel something, to feel human again, because he just felt utterly numb, utterly devastated that he had broken up with his partner. And his heart was racing. He thought he was having a heart attack. And so he called the ambulance. And in the back of the ambulance, he got some informal counselling, so to speak, from one of the other ambulance, um, uh, you know, the paramedics, who gave this young man the counsel that, don't worry, you'll meet the right person. And when you do, you'll feel better. And that just was enough to sort of uh, make him feel a bit better about himself. And off they took him to casualty to get his heart checked out. And when I watched that, I just thought to myself, no, 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 no. That is not what you need right now. You don't need yet another relationship that's just going to tear you apart. You need Jesus. That's what you need. you need. You need him. You need what he can only give you. You're not going to find that in your relationships. I felt grieved. What about the epidemic of suicide that's doing the rounds in our country, especially a young, uh, among young males? Does that provoke your spirit? What about the the swathe of depression and anxiety that just seems to hang over us like a dark cloud is pretty much normal now. Does that provoke you? What about this culture of loneliness? We're the most connected uh, generation that there's ever been when it comes to our electronic devices, and yet we are never more lonely than we are today. What about the generation of young people who live in a swamp of comparison, and narcissism and Instagram filters and online bullying, does that grieve your spirit when you see what that produces within them? What about the polarization in our society where these red battle lines are drawn between competing politics with increased anger and rhetoric that we see played out day and day on our TV screens? Are you not grieved? Is your spirit not provoked within you? Folks, do you not see that all of this is... is, is, is connected at a very profound level with the idols of our own culture. So as a church, we've got to learn what we are dealing with when we go out there to, to, to evangelize, to share the good news with our culture. We have to develop an understanding of our culture. We have to examine it. We have to be experts in knowing what it is. We... we have to relate as missionaries who are going to bring the gospel to a non-Christian culture out there or a post-Christian culture. So my question to you right now is this. Do you, have you realized what you are dealing with? When you go out to work and into those other areas of society, have you realized what you are dealing with? Have you ever thought it through? I just want to take a few moments to plug a couple of books here that I, will really help uh, if they've helped you as much as they've helped me, then, then uh, we're, we're on a winner. Um, anything by Francis Schaeffer, please read. This is brilliant. He is there and he is not silent. Just really help me to start thinking through some of these issues that we're talking about. I can't go into more details. He is there, he is not silent. Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. It's a modern classic. Please read it. Anything by Tim, I've, re I've read everything by Tim Keller. Brilliant. Leslie Newbegin, Foolishness for the Greeks. I haven't read everything by him, so I can't stand by everything. But um, this particular book here has been rocking my world recently. 
brilliant. All of these books will help you to think through some of the issues that we're talking about here. How do we go to a non-Christian culture with the gospel? Okay, so the first point that we see Paul doing, investing time to learning about it. Second thing I want to learn today, seize every opportunity to engage. Seize every opportunity to engage. I'm not trying to depress you folks or, or, or try and uh, you know, make you feel bad that the, 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 the world is a terrible place. But what I'm trying to do is, is stir your hearts to be provoked in the same way that Paul's was. Uh, we need to understand our culture so that we can address it, so that we can speak life into it in an effective way, in a way that can be heard. Because if we don't do that, we'll be speaking right over the heads of people and they will not understand. They will not be able to hear what we're saying because we're uh, shooting in the wrong direction got to understand it so uh, how did Paul seize every opportunity to engage the culture uh, look at verse 17 it says so therefore right full of idols provoked so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there down in verse 19 they took him to the Areopagus and said may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting Paul seized every opportunity to engage with the culture, and he did that in three places. Firstly, I think it's really interesting. The first thing he does is go to the synagogue. He sees a city drowning in idolatry, and he goes to the synagogue. He goes to religious people. He goes to fellow Jews and, and God-fearers, that is. And it says he reasons with them. The word reasons in Greek is dialogomai, which is where we get our word dialogue from. He dialogued with them, and he hoped that he could share his sorrow and his grief with his fellow Jews. He, he, he knew that the that, that Jews would share his hatred of idolatry from, from their Old Testament scriptures and from their, their, their Hebrew uh, understanding. And maybe he hoped that, that, that he, could, he could stir them to join him on mission and that they together could do something about it in their city. He wanted to tell his fellow Jews the gospel. He wanted to get them on his side so that they could together address this as one. We don't hear anything more about how that went. But firstly, he went to the religious people, his fellow Jews. Secondly, it says he went to the marketplace. Greek word for that is agora, agora. That's the third Greek word you've learned today, agora. That's where we get our word agoraphobic from, fear of the marketplace, fear of people. The marketplace was not just a place where you, you go and buy your, your, your bread and your cheese for the day, but it was a, a, a big area um, in many different parts of the city, uh, which was the place where people just gathered to do, you know, do life together. Sometimes if you go and visit a European continental city, you know, sometimes in the middle of the city, there's a big square and there's cafes all around the outside and museums and all that. And there's people milling around and doing like, just imagine that place full, hustle bustle, just, just people doing life together, talking, sharing, debating, discussing, trading, not just goods, but trading ideas. That was the kind of thing that took place in the Agora, in the marketplace uh, in ancient Athens. We don't really have that so much here, but I guess today the modern day equivalent might be, you can think of maybe ex examples of yourself, but maybe the pub, you know, where people gather together and talk and share and, 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 and all that, discuss ideas, maybe the coffee shop, I don't know, maybe the university campus, Nowadays, you know, it happens online. It's like a virtual marketplace. Maybe it's through art forms, you know, presenting ideas for the general public to access and think through. That's the marketplace. Anyway, open to everybody. Anyone who wants to come, Paul would engage with them. First, second, and the third place he went to, 
the third place he went was the Areopagus, which uh, traditionally is known as Mars Hill. Mars being the, the Roman god, Ares being the Greek version of that Roman god, Ares. Opagus is the hill of Aris. Anyway, I'll remove all this from the audio, don't worry. Um, so he went up to Areopagus, which is otherwise known as Mars Hill. And it was the place where, uh, in ancient Greece, there was a council, a gathering of the greatest intellects in all Athens. They would get together. The marketplace, as I said, was an open forum, but the Areopagus was by invite only. It was the place where the intellectual elites gathered together the best minds. You don't just walk on in there. You only get there by invitation. It is a special hallowed turf, you know, for the, for the philosophers. Today, our equivalent will probably be the university, the lecture theatres, being invited by professors and scholars to a, a give a lecture or a symposium or something like that. That's the equivalent. But whether it's in the synagogue or the marketplace or in the Areopagus, Paul takes every opportunity. He wastes no time. He dialogues with whoever comes across his path. He has this conversation. Of course, conversation is not just speaking, rather like what I'm doing. It's not a monologue. It's a listening. It's a dialogue. It's a speaking backwards. It's a responding uh, conversation. Of course, he needed a different approach to each space that he visited, different set of skills. When he went to the synagogue, he could appeal from the, the scriptures, he could reason with his fellow Jews in the synagogue. He could speak in uh, religious, recognizable religious language that they would understand. But he couldn't speak like that and appeal like that when he went to the marketplace. He probably had to change his language a bit. Maybe he wanted to use humor and informality to try and gain a crowd. He would use different language compared to when he was addressing the synagogue in order to get a hearing for the gospel. And likewise, the third place, when he went into the Areopagus, he would probably change his language and his position again, his approach, using technical, formal language. Greater formality, greater respect when he went to the Areopagus. The point, folks, is this. He was ready for each opportunity. He was pre prepared for each opportunity. He was not starting from scratch. He was not reduced to a mess on the ground thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to say? He knew a bit about each group. He knew a bit about their underlying beliefs and he saw how they saw the world. And that meant that he was able to adjust his approach to each group depending on their situation. So I wonder, do you feel equally as confident to address different types of people in different scenarios? Are you tooled up when it comes to engaging a non-Christian culture, whatever scenario that happens to be? Do you know, for example, what the average atheist thinks and believes? Because I can guarantee you work with some atheists and agnostics. What do they really think? What do they really believe? And what is that based on? Where do they get that from? Have you ever asked them? What about your nominal Catholic or even nominal Protestant friends that you work with who identify with that cultural label? What do they believe? Don't assume you know what people think and believe just because you have an idea in your head. Take it even further afield outside the sort of Western bubble. What about Islam? Have you ever read up on Islam? Have you ever spoken to a, a Muslim friend or colleague to understand their beliefs? Or any number of world religions? 
Are you tooled up? Are you ready? Do you understand? I'm not saying you have to be an expert on all of these things, but do you have a rough grip so you know where to start? You're not starting from scratch. Because if you don't and you want to get tooled up, that will very much influence the way you spend your time. The books you read, the articles you, you pull down from the internet, even the films you watch will give you insights onto your culture. Not just watching movies for entertainment's sake, although you can, but are you a scholar of your culture? Can you, can you understand why people do what they do and how they think the way they do? Because ultimately we are a community on mission and we have to look at those people around us with missionary eyes. How do we present the gospel most compellingly and clearly to these people, these different groups of people in front of us? Folks, I don't want you to freak out. I don't want you to think that all of us or any of us perhaps are called into the, the philosophical vanguard, you know, uh, the, the hallways of intellectual power to, to give a, a, you know, an astounding lecture on Christian faith. That's maybe your calling, maybe it's not. All of this, by the way, is a question of gifting, it's a question of calling, it's a question of skill. Some of you might be better at reasoning with fellow Christians or religious people about the idolatry of our city. Some of you may be better in the marketplace with an opportunity uh, you know, to, to, to share with your colleagues and, and, and people you meet at the pub and all that stuff. Some of you may be better in, uh, positioned to influence those great minds as you get an opportunity to lecture or to share with um, skeptics and professionals. Maybe you're being called to be more engaging with Christian influence online in your online presence, your online social media, your online writing. Maybe through art. Here's a great example of uh, how, how this randomly worked for me. A few weeks ago at, at work, I, I was certainly not uh, in the mood for evangelism. I did not set this situation up at all, but I was sat there talking to uh, one of my colleagues at work who's a, a Catholic, a devout Catholic. And um, she said to me, just out of the blue, so what is it you believe? And at that moment, everybody just stopped around me. There was probably about 10 or 12 colleagues, physiotherapists, nurses, cleaners. Everybody just stopped. You know, the tumbleweeds sort of went down the, the hallway and they all just looked at me. What is it you believe? And so I knew right there and then that was one of those moments that uh, God had put in my life for me to represent Jesus or, or not. And so I said, well, <clears throat> I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Um, I, I recited the Apostles' Creed, uh, kind of, you know, I sung it. And uh, I believe in God. But I said, look, I, I believe very much the same things that, that people from a Catholic faith do as well. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin and blah, blah, blah. I just went down this list and, you know, I, 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 I can't believe you, you actually believe these things. This is a Catholic person speaking to me. And I was like, of course I do. We, we both believe this together. I believe the Apostles' Creed. And it was just an amazing moment. And that, you know, the, then, then the conversation carried on and people went back to work. But right there in that moment, there was an opportunity in the marketplace, an exchange of ideas. And uh, pennies were dropping. And um, who knows what may, may come of that. But are you ready? Are you ready to enter into that dialogue and debate? You could clam up and just say, well, I don't know. And, um, and that's that. Long and, long and short of it is this. 
Do whatever is in your power and ability to do. If God has put it in your heart and your mind that you have a gift or a skill or an ability to reach a certain type of people within culture, then do it. Do whatever is in your power and ability to do. Don't think you've got to be like that other guy or that other woman over there with this other different ministry. That's not you. Do whatever is in your power and ability to do. If you are part of the community or mission here at Foundation Church, you will seek out opportunities to engage with the culture. Quite frankly, if you're a consumer, just here for the ride, then you're not going to seek out those opportunities. You're not really bought in to the kind of thing that we're seeing Paul here doing. So first of all, uh, invest time to learn our culture. Secondly, um, take every opportunity to engage the culture. And thirdly and finally, uh, present Christ compellingly. When you get that opportunity, uh, present Christ compellingly in a way that he can be heard and received. I just want to briefly look at Paul's message. And there's so much going on. There's so many things I want to point to, but I'm not going to. just want to look briefly at his message to the Areopagus to know roughly some of the things that when you're in that position, you get to represent Jesus. Here are some of the things that you should do, like Paul, okay, to make this as compelling as possible. When you are preaching Christ or presenting him or talking of the faith, number one, we see Paul speak in a respectful tone, affirming the good parts of the culture. Where do I get that from? Verse 22. Paul stands up in the midst of the Areopagus, right? One guy, don't know how many, say 50 plus philosophers and, and, and uh, you know, lecturers and professors and all the, the you know, the, uh, the intellectuals of the day. And he says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. See how, how respectful he is at the start. See how he's affirming something good about their culture. He didn't start off by saying, men of Athens, you are filthy idolaters and hell awaits all of you unless you repent of your sins. Those things are true. But that's not how he started. He looked for what is good in their belief system and he affirmed it. He didn't use derogatory terms that would shut down the conversation straight away. Every culture and every worldview and every philosophy has something good that you can find and affirm in it. Because all this is about building a bridge between you and the people you're trying to reach with the gospel. So look for that, have a respectful tone. Don't use derogatory terms, affirm the good things that you can see. Here's, a, here's an example, right? Um, I, I literally came upon this yesterday. It was some research that had just been published the week before. So this is hot off of the press, okay? And maybe one day I'll share it with you. Uh, we could talk about it in our foundation communities because it's really interesting. But it provides this fascinating um, review into the beliefs of atheists and agnostics in six countries, the United States, United Kingdom here, and that does include for the purposes of this Northern Ireland, uh, Denmark, China, Brazil, and Japan, all right? Surveying agnostics who don't know if a God exists, but if he does, we, don't, we, can't, we can't ever know him. That's what agnostics believe. Atheists, no, no God. Fascinating. And it says this, right? At least, at least, in, our, in the UK, right? At least a third of atheists and 40% of agnostics still retain belief in the supernatural. They're atheists. And yet a third of them still believe there's something else out there. And to that, we, we will say, good. 
we have something in common. Or listen to this. The majority of atheists and agnostics in the United Kingdom believe that human life has special value and dignity and there is a set of rights given to us that no others have. Majority of them believe that. And again, we'll say good, because we believe that too. We have that in common. We agree. This is just from research, right? This is not conversation with people. Everybody's a bit different. But it gives you the rough idea. We can, we can see something good in a different belief system. We can, we can say co there's common ground. We can build a bridge. We can talk about that. So start with a respectful tone, affirming the good parts in the other belief system. Okay, that's the first thing he does. Second thing he does, okay, after he's done that, he exposes the faults and inconsistencies of their belief system. Verse 23. As I passed along, I observed your objects of worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. You see what he's doing? He's found this altar with an inscription to the unknown God. And what he's saying to the Areopagus, he's saying, look, in your system, in your belief system, you've already shown, you've already acknowledged that there is more out there than you know. There's, in your system, there's an unknown God. There's, you've already told us there's a gap in your knowledge. And therefore, I'm going to expose that gap and I'm going to tell you what that unknown God is like. A few more examples. Again, back to that research paper that, that, I, that I came across. It says this. Two-thirds of atheists and three-quarters of agnostics in the UK say that the universe has ultimate meaning. There is meaning to the universe. So we can expose that inconsistency and say, well, why should there be any meaning in anything if there is no God? How can you have meaning unless there is an ultimate fixed point of reference in your belief system? Because otherwise, with no God and no higher power and nothing out there other than you and us, meaning's just what we assign. It's just re relative and what might mean something for you doesn't mean it for me and therefore, what, what is meaning? See what I mean? Maybe. Here's another thing. 30% of atheists and 40% of agnostics believe in the underlying forces of good and evil. But again, how can that be? If you don't have a God or a higher power or anything outside of yourself, then how can anything be truly good or truly evil? It's just all relative. It's what you assign to it. What might be evil for you might be good for, for me. How do we know? Again, it's just understanding so that we can expose the faults and say, how can this be in your system? How can you live with this? Paul takes this a little step further and he sort of uh, quotes a couple of their own poets and their artists, you know, in verse 28. Um, God is not far from us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own pop, uh, poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He's selecting voices in culture, influential voices and artists and poets in their own culture that also point to the problem that we can see in their belief system. You see how Paul has invested time and learning to understand what that culture is saying and what their artists are saying. For us, there is no shortage of this as we listen to pop songs 
as we watch films, as we even hear some of the drivel that our own celebrities and our famous people come out with, there is no shortage of awareness that there is problems with a life without God. We can just quote that back and say, how can that be? So in a respectful tone, he affirms the good parts. He exposes the faults and inconsistencies. And thirdly, finally, he presents the Christian faith. When all those bits are done, he presents the Christian faith directly. There is no uh, beating around the bush. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but 24 to 41, Paul says in his sort of summary, uh, this is just a summary of what he would have said on the day, uh, God is supreme. God is the creator of everything that's seen and unseen. God is sovereign. He controls all things. He controls time. He, he created people to, to come to relationship with him. But you see, God cannot be controlled. He cannot be shaped. You don't have him in your service. You get yourself in his service. You, you Athenians, you've got it all wrong. God commands you to repent, to turn to him because there's a day when Jesus, his son, will come and he will judge you for your belief and your faith. And he proved this by raising Jesus from the dead. Boom. That's just a summary, right? But we can tell that Paul, Paul pulls no punches. He's speaking to the Areopagus, right? These are the, these are the most bright, intelligent, learned uh, individuals in the entire culture. And there he is, a bold, brave pulling no punches, talk that says, you've got it wrong. God is in control. Jesus is coming. Repent and turn to him. Otherwise, God's going to get you. No sign of leaving out the tough bits. No softening off for the, 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 uh, you know, the liberal elites. People need to hear and know the gospel. That might be his only shot. And he gives it both barrels. So when the opportunity presents itself, Present the Christian faith directly. Don't beat around the bush. Don't leave stuff out. Go for it. So, conclusion to all of this. Invest time learning our culture. Seize every opportunity to engage it in those three areas, perhaps. And when you get the opportunity, present Christ compellingly. Don't use derogatory terms, but present them clearly and directly and passionately. Folks, in conclusion, I just wanted to know, this is different for all of us. I don't want this stuff here to, 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 to bury you under a mountain of facts and figures or philosophy and things that are just new perhaps to your ears. It's different for all of us. The purpose of all this is to get us thinking as a church. Because we, we, we know that we have to address the gospel to all cultures. And the gospel can be addressed to all cultures and it's upon us to do that in the name of Jesus. And so as a gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission, we need to take this stuff seriously. Please uh, grab a hold of one of these books at the end just to take the, note it down and read it. Try and read it over the summer. Love you to do that. Um, but we just, folks, we can't be ignorant. If we want to be honorable and faithful and powerful in presenting the good news of Jesus, we have to learn our culture and understand how it thinks and uh, the people around us. We do that at Foundation Church, try and do that through the sermons and our gatherings. I just want this to be a place where you can bring your non-religious friends along. Yes, they'll be hearing things that perhaps they've never heard before. But, but, but I labor. Um, I hope it comes across that, that uh, outsiders can come in and hear and, and hear the gospel and, and hopefully be compelled to put faith in Christ. So we want that to be uh, something we do and we're really good at here at Foundation Church. Uh, I want you to be equipped with books. If you're not a reader, 
um, if that's not your thing, blogs, you know, online, YouTube clips, sermons, lectures, podcasts, anything like that. Um, I'd love to um, recommend some of those to you if you're not a reader. Be wise in what you read, though, um, of course. Uh, get tooled up. Seek out opportunities. No hanging back. And when you get those opportunities, have a posture of humility. Listening and friendship, by the way, will get you further than all your philosophy and all your knowledge. Just sitting down with a friend and listening and talking and asking good questions will get you over the line. Let's be a church that's a community on mission. Let's pray.